You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your hungry and impatient host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your fluffy and sweet host, Shane. (laughs) And this is a psychology (laughs) podcast. We like to talk about all kinds of things, bring a nice scientific skeptical flair to it, you know, bring in the fun. Yeah, of course. That's what we do. Today is no different. I think this episode is going to be a blast. Like just because I think this is a study that people talk about a lot. And just like this, this whole, you hear it a lot and you see different experiments and stuff. I think we're going to learn some stuff here. And the thing that we're learning about specifically is we are talking about this delayed gratification thing. Mm -hmm. And this starts with a 1970s paper called Attention and Delay Gratification by Walter Mischel, Mischel? And Eb B. Ebison, possibly the <laughs> world record holder for longest name with fewest different letters used. <laughs> and they published the study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And they were, quote, exploring the relationship between various preference patterns for immediate smaller rewards or delayed larger rewards and other theoretically relevant aspects of personality functioning, end quote. So a lot of people colloquially know this as the marshmallow test. Yeah, and so you've probably seen versions of this where kids are sitting at a table and they're asked to do something or do nothing and just wait while these marshmallows sit in front of them and all that stuff. You've probably seen different examples of that. There's a really great a magician that did a cool trick with this. I can't remember I can't remember what his name was, but he did this really neat trick around this particular study. So, but we're going to talk a lot today about this idea of motivations and relative value. The idea of like something having or holding more value in a particular moment rather than the idea of like disappointing somebody or anything like that holding a different set of values. So, we're talking about social responsibility, age, all of those things that kind of like influence in intelligence too, how they influence whether or not somebody can wait for a period of time for a particular reward. And what that says about you. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So this study investigated sustained waiting behavior, some patients there. Yeah. For this delayed gratification thing with the independent variable being the context in which the waiting took place. So with or without temptation or distraction. And so there were this, we'll go over the, the, the general set of the study, but there's basically there are preferred treats, marshmallows being one of them. And they were either visible or or not, and how that affected kids' impulsivity. And so, yeah, we're going to more or less dig into this original study and then some follow-up research, of which there Mm -hmm. has been a bit, and also talk about sort of conceptually some important factors here. Because I think, as you said, this is one that a lot of people like to reference and refer back to as this example of, see, this is how we have this sort of intrinsic motivation to be patient, this self-control thing. It's just our personality, right? And that's why people turn out differently, because they have this, this characteristic of themselves. But the study didn't really show that. It didn't even really try to show that. Right. But this, this is, uh, I think, a way that that's extrapolated sometimes. 
Yeah, so let's go ahead and just dive right into it because we've got a lot to cover. So I want to make sure that we hit all the the major points and y'all are are feeling good with this. So the original experiment included three separate experiments. The original paper kind of talked about this these three different experiments and ultimately each one showed similar results, but not quite what people are citing it for, right? So let's start with the, the first experiment. Okay. First, you've got the Bing Nursery School at Stanford University, and that included 56 preschoolers who participated. And we say participated, they probably didn't assent because we're talking about 1970. So they were yeah. probably just told to do this. They were gathered and thrown into an experimental chamber. Yeah, 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 yeah. Their parents maybe consented, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe, they're yeah. They're like, hey, look, free kids. They probably yeah. want to be in this experiment. Eh, yeah, exactly. Oh, they're, they're already in our nursery. They're probably, like, university professors' kids that were part of this, too. Like, so talking <laughs> about, like, the, the perpetuation of, like, the best research pools are always from universities. Here's just another example of that. That's just the university people's kids. Where else are you going to research people? Those That's where all the people are. That's where all the people are. That's the most representative, exi- uh, per, you know, sample of people. It's just at universities. Yeah, yeah. There's no way that people are not, you know, selected for different characteristics at that level. And particularly at Stanford University, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Who the ninety percent of so, people go there? So diverse, so diverse. So experimenters spent a few days building rapport with the kids to gain instructional control so they could actually like deliver instructions and and get the kids to listen and and they built rapport like almost like a therapeutic relationship. Sure. All right. So essentially, there were these five groups, and in each group, the experimenter would leave the the kid in the room, and they would tell the kid that, the, and they would have a treat with them. Well, actually, for some of them, there was a treat. Some of them, there wasn't. For all of them, they said you could have whatever when we returned in fifteen minutes. However, the child could opt out of this, and they could ring a bell to say so the experimenter would tell them the the kid this and then leave the room and the kid could ring the bell and be like i'm done waiting give me my thing and they yes would sort of tap out if they if the temptation was too great and they just couldn't couldn't restrain themselves any longer yes and so essentially the conditions were pretty similar so we had three groups where there were treats present and there were two groups where there were not treats present and in the three groups where they were present they were essentially told or they were given something and so they always had a pretzel or a marshmallow and whichever one was their favorite they would pick and they if they waited the 15 minutes they could get the one that they preferred the most and if they didn't wait the 15 minutes then they would get the one that they preferred the least and the first three groups they could see the treats in all three conditions Uh and in one of those groups they were given a slinky they could play with and another one they were simply told to think of something fun something else fun and the last one, they were given nothing. And they're just like, wait 15 minutes. And if you do, then you'll get the, the good thing. Which that sounds horrible. I Like if somebody just told me to sit and do nothing for 15 minutes, I would lose my mind. <laughs> mind implodes. That's it. Ah, I can't do it. So in the other two conditions that the treat was not readily available, there were no treats in view. They were considered a distraction versus no entertainment type of condition. So they were not given choice or presentation of edibles. What was done instead was they were allowed to play with toys with experimenters after waiting for 15 minutes or after signaling. So they were allowed to play with the experimenters or not essentially is what that came down to and so there were two conditions that looked like this one was they were allowed to play with the people the other one was told that they didn't have a competing activity right so the first one they're told they can play there's a competing activity of a slinky if they wait they have permission to play the second one is they're told to think about something fun and if they can wait 15 minutes then they get to play with the experimenter so again so like it's kind of like 
the same conditions. There's distractions versus no distractions. There's snacks versus no snacks. There's different things going on there. And I think this helped them more or less rule out that the visual component was the, or I guess, determine whether the visual component was really important and whether they saw the kids wait or opt out to wait. Yes. All right. So the results of this first experiment that are all part of this paper, that children were more willing to wait longer if they were offered a reward for doing so. And this is the first three groups, right? Right. And if they weren't rewarded for waiting longer, then they did not. And that was the second two, the last two groups of the distraction with the slinky versus just think about something, right? Right. Children waited even longer when tasks that distracted or uh, where they had something to distract them or entertain them while they waited. So they had some kind of activity that they could spend their time with, which, you know, sort of makes sense when people go like to the DMV, they stand in line with their phone and their headphones and they they wait the 17 to 20 hours while they watch all the TV shows. <laughs> Or like a single episode of Pretty Little Liars. And that's, you're right, right, right. <laughs> very, very long episodes. But that's like, uh, Disney's like that too. Like when you go to Disney now and you wait in line, there's things that distract you in line to f- make you forget that you've been standing in line for three hours to ride Snow White in the in the runaway minecart. Yeah. <laughs> so what they found though, was so, so, so the children waited even longer when those distracted than when they were distracted. But that's a question of that kind of like, competing engagement, right? That competing activity, that thing that's getting in the way. So there were more experiments that were done on this. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. And just note that at this point, there's no discussion yet on what the implications and social consequences might be related to the directions that the experimenter gave or the expected reaction to waiting or not waiting. This, this will come, come back a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. So with experiment two, it was a similar setup, but they only had three groups and only 32 participants. And so all the groups had the contingency of waiting for a high preference treat for 15 minutes or signaling prematurely and forfeiting the high preference for the for the low one instead. So they all had that same contingency where you, if you wait, you get the good one. If you don't wait, you get the not so good one, but you still get something. And the distracting activity part is what was different this time. So they were just looking at different ways to evaluate that. So in one group, they were asked to think about fun things. And that was similar to one of the groups above where they had the same distraction. Another group was asked to think about sad things. And they were given examples of sad things they could think about, like the final episode of Breaking Bad. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that's so sad. (laughs) And the third group was asked to think about the treats that they were waiting for. Now, we could acknowledge some of the confounds here from a mentalistic point of view. Tough to control experimentally what the participant is actually thinking of, regardless of the direction. But I think just considering that the experimenters assumed that the children were reacting in some level with the instruction that they were giving in terms of what to think about. Yeah. So ultimately, what it comes down to is that group A... that had the distraction by thinking of fun things. They waited the longest compared to group C, which was thinking about the treats themselves. They waited the least they could, they couldn't make it or thinking of sad things, which was group B, you know, those folks that are thinking of breaking bad episodes and like, I don't know, maybe the entire plot of eternal sunshine, the spotless mind, like just the saddest stuff they're in the middle. So they could kind of wait. They could not kind of wait, but ultimately the folks that, that were thinking of fun things and had distractors could wait the longest. Sure. So important variables there. All right. Now we get into our last experiment for this paper. And this is, again, similar to the other two, this time with only 16 children and the same setup. But this time the treats were blocked from view with sort of a 
cake covering thing. Yeah. Apparently an opaque one. <laughs> and they were the kids were told that this would keep the the treats fresh. So fresh. So fresh. And again, they had some distracting activities. One, they were told to think about the treats that they were waiting for. One, they were told about to think about fun things. And the other group, they weren't told anything. They were just like, all right, you have to wait for 15 minutes, peace. And then they would leave the room. <laughs> so group C, which was the task, they had no task given. They were just they were just said like, hey, here's a marshmallow under this cake cover. See ya. They actually waited the longest, but in this case, just barely above group B, which were the group that were told to think of fun things, and group A, which were thinking about the treats, hardly waited at all. It's interesting that removing the treats from view makes thinking about them less, uh, like there's like less of an impact on waiting. Like even when they were out of view, they were still kind of like, I can't tolerate this. I need these things. That's right. <laughs> just thinking, thinking of yeah when you're like waiting for the release of something like a video game or, or something that's going to come out and it's like every second of the day you're just like oh one more second closer to the release well it's like it's like disney plus like right now what they're doing with like the premiere access stuff it's like you could watch you could watch black widow now for this much money it's true you could go see it in the theaters for this much money or you can wait 30 days and get it for free and it's like everybody's like no yeah we gotta go i won't wait I take won't my wait. money I can't wait 30 days take my money now like i've worked disney. several hours for this thing disney says okay so, he says okay <laughs> and and it was still it was a, it was a, it was a fun jaunt through black widow story so yeah all right so for the final sort of wrap up on this here the successful delay of gratification or self-control was dependent upon what they referred to as this cognitive avoidance or suppression of expected treats during the waiting period, which is to say distraction. Yeah. So they were more successfully able to wait if they were distracted. Really waiting was most successful when there was trust in the experimenters established like kind of like the contingency they set up, especially when there was a high preference treat. Okay. So like there was more trust in waiting was more successful when they said, if you wait, you will get this do some things instead when attention was shifted away from the treats like if they were thinking of fun things or even thinking about sad things was better than thinking of the treats themselves and the children were occupied with seemingly what are described as like competing activities or things that you could do instead such as toys or unrelated thoughts so that's when waiting was the most successful now critical evaluations and there are a lot there were some from simplepsychology.org they expressed concern over the sample size the demographics of the sample population, which is an issue that we raised when we started talking about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the caveat of not including a condition in which participants could have the less preferred option immediately versus the high preferred one later. All of the studies have involved signaling first or giving up as opposed to just potentially getting it. Yeah. So at the end of the day, this study shows a couple things, right? Children wait less time when both treats were present and longer when neither treat was present. The delay required, quote, suppressing rather than enhancing attention to expected rewards, end quote, or like engaging in intermediate behavior that competed with the tempting stimuli. So essentially what they were doing was they were engaging in something else that was getting in the way. Like we can kind of figure that out. Like a kid stared at a mirror, covered their eyes, talked or sang, anything to not look at the marshmallows and pretzels. And you've probably seen videos of kids doing that. Like that's, those are the experiments that I've seen where it's there. The kids right. are like doing stuff. They're making faces. They're doing all kinds of goofy things in the time. And then like all of a sudden they're like, oh, this marshmallow looks so good. And they can't handle it. Right. Right. So essentially that's that's what the result was. But the implication here was that 
some people, some kids had better stress tolerance and that higher SAT scores more than a decade later could come out of this, right? So we're going to talk about those SAT scores in a little bit, but there's some pretty interesting things that came out of this study. Yeah. So just as you were saying, one of the big things that they're pointing to is when they didn't give them something else to do, the kids would distract themselves. They were essentially showing a level of self-control by regulating their own behavior by trying to remove temptation in some way. Right. And that they more or less implied that, okay, these are kids who have good strategies for dealing with stressful things in life, for managing their own behavior, for regulating their temptations. So that's sort of what they're implying by this. And this then got codified into the psychology textbooks of yore for the next several decades of, <laughs> look, we have definitively shown like how why people do what they do because of marshmallows. Yes. Which, I mean, great. That's awesome. No, no, no more science needed. We got to figure it out. Yeah. But as a value that we hold on our show, we like to reiterate a single study is not consensus. Right. So replications are necessary. Also, I want to be clear. I don't think the authors were necessarily making that claim. I think a, a lot of the subsequent authors that put this in their papers were making that stand for them. But yeah, we are a fan of tearing things apart and seeing what's underneath, who's behind the curtain. Yes. What's really going on. Well, and also like it's so easy to set up situations where you could interpret the data in a few different ways based on your experimental setup. But all you have to do is change that one little thing and all of a sudden you have a drastically different outcome. So yeah, it falls apart. Yeah. On that, let's talk about some other longitudinal studies that happened. Yes. So in 1990, in that year that I was four and also a great year for Ninja Turtles, <laughs> a study was done by Michel and his graduate students while at Columbia. And they sent surveys out to 450 of over the 600 original participants in the early studies. And these former preschooler participants were now teenagers taking the SATs. So now they're all grown up. And imagine being a teenager in the 90s. I mean, we were teenagers in the 90s, but it was like the late 90s. So it was like right. we got like all the space stuff and Chrome and Smash Mouth. We didn't get all the cool stuff like Nirvana. We got that, but we weren't <laughs> teenagers to experience that on a real level. You know, what we so, did get, though, was Fight Club because that was published or that was uh, released in 99. We did get Fight Club. That was that was a good one. I like Fight Club. Apparently, there's a whole controversy with like Brad Pitt and Edward Norton and Rosie O'Donnell because Rosie O'Donnell spoiled it for everybody. I don't remember that happening, but. I guess that he was, was the thing dead that the whole time. <laughs> so the researchers wanted to see if their behavior, the, the original participants in that delay gratification in those experiments held any predictive value on determining their SAT outcomes, among other factors. So so now they've, they're saying, does the delay in gratification and their success in that have any sort of prediction about whether or not they will do well on their SATs? All right. Now, the average amount of time that children spent waiting from the scores that parents reported from the SAT, they were not statistically significant from the ones who chose not to disclose that information. So essentially, the children of hyper-compliant sheeple didn't perform any different than those of tinfoil, big state conspiracy nut jobs. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, future directions of this may determine the likelihood of preschool behavior on joining Antifa or QAnon, but we're still in the IRB phase on this. We're designing the study. <laughs> we don't really have that information yet, but once we do, we'll share it with y'all. Yeah, we'll let, you, we'll let you know how it shakes out on the other <laughs> end. So essentially what this comes down to, though, is that the, for those preschoolers that had no cognitive task or competing activity. So no distraction. No distractions. 
none had been suggested and the treats remained in sight. So they were told that they, they could just wait and that the treat was in sight. They actually correlated well and insignificantly with later SAT scores. So the correlations for those kids that could wait without distractions while it was in sight in their SAT scores, there was, there was better correlation than anyone else. At least without the presented distractions, they may have distracted themselves, but yeah, as you're saying that essentially what this is suggesting that those who engaged in some form of self-control in, in one way or another, whatever that might be, whatever that might look like, their, their SAT scores were better later. Again, it's because they're better at controlling their own behavior about regulating their impulses. At least that's what yeah. they're, that's being suggested. Here. That's, we're not that's actually the argument. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's the argument that's being made here. Yes. All right. Now we have another 10 years later. We're moving into the 2000s. I don't recall good movies coming out in the 2000s. Not, I think maybe not a hot uh, year for movies. Yeah, maybe not a hot year for movies. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of disaster movies around then, like maybe like The Day After Tomorrow and stuff like that, because I feel like the Y2K buzz was going around. Hmm. Matrix was around that time. Was it? Like one of them. Maybe you're right. Okay. I feel like Matrix was 99 as well. I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of chrome, a lot of chrome and a lot of lip gloss at that time. Like yeah. I was watching something that's like when somebody was talking about like late 90s, early 2000s fashion, it was like everybody wore belts that didn't need them. I don't know what you're talking about. Like you just wore a belt over your dress. Like, I mean, I always wore a belt, but like other people would wear them like and there was no belt loops. It's a whole thing, apparently. I remember there being uh, those really big baggy jeans around this time. Jinko jeans. Yeah, I was going to say, please refer them to them by their proper name. Jinkos. Thank you. <laughs> I had a pair called pipelines. Thank you. Nice. And they just fit me like normal jeans because I was a f***ing monster when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) And your legs were pipes, so they were lines for those pipes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we were talking about this 2000 study. The authors here, Oslam Iduk, maybe? They were also at Columbia. They set out to determine correlations between these preschoolers' delayed gratification, impulse control sort of behavior, and their later self-worth, self-esteem, and ability to cope with stress. So see, is the relation between your delayed gratification and your overall sort of mental health well-being with respect to your self-worth and your stress coping, that sort of thing. And to do this, they mailed out questionnaires to these now adult participants or their parents, if they're available, to try and evaluate and measure their state in the above domains that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Again, this is self-reporting, so take it with a bit of a grain of salt, but they were trying to get some kind of measure just to see what they reported. Yeah. And so the results were that the positive functioning composite from self-ratings or parent ratings were positively correlated with the delay to gratification scores. So essentially what that says is the preschoolers who had had better weighting behavior tended to have better self-esteem, better self-worth, better ability to cope with stress during adulthood than the other lower weighting behavior peers. So essentially, if you can wait better, you feel better about yourself, you find that you have better abilities to cope with stresses and all that stuff. Now, one thing that I think about this real quick. So that's what this study determined. Again, survey, self-report and all that. But could you imagine like every 10 years, like you're waiting for a survey to show up at your house because some guy told you you couldn't have marshmallows for 15 minutes? Like, <laughs> like imagine that life. You're like 60 years old. Like you have like you have lived life. Like so like in 1970, you're probably like five. Right. Something like that. So that this person would be my mom's age. OK, so my mom, imagine my mom, Peanut, 
just receiving a survey every few years, like every like decade where she's like, I got to do this thing again. Now they're asking me about like my performance in motorsports related to my waiting and gratification. Like what is going on here? I would love to meet those people and get that data. I want that data from those people. What is your thought about receiving this survey at random? Right. <laughs> Not even just about like what's your overall level of self-control now but uh how do you feel about uh the fact that we hunted you down to continue to bother you about this <laughs> i i want to know i want to know yeah it feels good right <laughs> yeah right are you really happy that we still haven't given you that marshmallow because like, there's a kid that only got the pretzel like think about this for a second there's somebody in that array that didn't get the marshmallow they only got the pretzel that's right so like when you're thinking like that kid's going to stanford university or columbia university i just want my like that would be my my thing it's like i will do this but you need to give me a marshmallow to this day they just hate pretzels so much <laughs> right right <laughs> won't touch them pretzel pretzel phobia they there's somebody that's like that has a plot to take down snyder's pretzels because of this study <laughs> pretzel the snyder cut <laughs> okay so some time goes by it seems at this point that we're more or less dyed in the wool we figured it out marshmallows are the key to everything people suck at self-control uh -huh. or else they're really good at it and that means that they're good at life but this 2013 study by Tanya Schlamm, a doctoral student at University of Wisconsin, investigated the correlation between the original studies and later body mass index, BMI. So you should be looking at this again. <laughs> We're back to self-control and the fact that they're eating all these marshmallows when they're young, but waiting for them. Yes. Right. That's the big thing. If you think about Will Ferrell's character in The Office when he's yelling at that piece of cake, he's like, <laughs> yeah. portion control. And he just grabs a piece with his hand and he yells at it. He's like, no. <laughs> and he just throws it in the trash. Just throws it in the trash. What are you doing, D'Angelo? <laughs> <laughs> what a great scene. So, unfortunately, chubby little Brucey from Matilda and his huge chocolate cake were not included in this study, or else it would probably be an outlier, I would imagine. Yeah. So, and we cannot ignore the immediate course of control of Miss Trunchbull, right? Like, what a what an awful an awful teacher. Yeah, an so, awful anyway, name. Awful name too. So, in this study, they were able to gather 146 individuals from the original study. So, can somebody say attrition? Attrition. Attrition. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and so, the results were that there was a correlation of lower BMI with waiting behavior. So, if somebody could wait, they had lower BMI. Each additional minute a preschooler waited predicted a 0.2 point reduction in BMI in adulthood. So, now you think about this. Now, if I can wait longer, I'm in better shape. <laughs> I feel better about myself. That's right. Better SAT scores. Better SAT scores. So... There's a lot of like uh, uh, assumptions going on here, I think. Like, I feel good about myself and I got good SAT scores and I can't wait for anything. So pretty much all the wealthiest, most successful people in the world, they've just got marshmallows on a little golden pedestal in a glass case at home. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, they're like, no. Yeah, not <laughs> today, marshmallow. <laughs> Side note, how the marshmallow went mainstream with the advent of YouTube and TikTok, a pattern of viral videos emerged of parents making their kids wait for something preferred, walking away, and then recording the child's peculiar behaviors in the interim. Everyone loves a bandwagon. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's how we got here. That's why we're even talking about this right now. Thanks, TikTok. This is the this is the world we live in. <laughs> right. So let's talk about then some updates. Let's talk about some things that are happening right now around different studies and kind of what this says about 
you know, human beings and kind of what they've discovered. So in 2013, a study done by a colleague of ours, Dr. Goki, found that autistic learners were able to, to delay gratification when the distant reward or the cool reward was considered larger or more valuable, right? So like the, the again, kind of going back to that original study, I can wait for the marshmallow because it's way cooler than the pretzel. But this was only the case when a concurrent schedule or competing activities like a distractor was available during those wait period times. So you've got a 2013 study applied to autistic learners that found the same exact thing that we found before, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So further confirming sort of the the overall contextual features that need to be in place or that, that could be in place at least. All right. So we also have a 2018 paper, so getting a little more recent, by Tyler Watts, assistant professor at NYU, and Greg Duncan and Hannon Honan. Honan Kwan? Honan Kwan. I am so sorry. I butchered that so terribly. Both from UC Irvine explored another longitudinal study. So they examined data from 918 participants by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, part of NIH, National Institute of Health. Mm-hmm. And the sample split into two groups based on whether the mother of the child had completed a college degree by the time the child was one month old. And authors noted that the group without degrees was, quote, more comparable to a nationally representative sample, end quote, but that, quote, Hispanic children were underrepresented in the sample, end quote. So that makes sense. If you read any research, that's not shocking. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's that's pretty much like yeah. This is what this is what happened. So like all the re all the all the IQ tests you ever took were normed to white like white male kids. Yep. So now at four point five years old, the children were exposed to a variation of the marshmallow test. They were presented with treats based on their own preferences. So and a game was explained with the following rules. So first, the interviewer would leave the child alone with the treat. If the child waited seven minutes. The interviewer would return and the child would then be able to eat the treat plus an additional portion as a reward for waiting. And if the child did not want to wait, they could ring a bell to signal the interviewer to return early and the child would then be able to eat the treat without an additional portion. And so the the delay of gratification recorded how long the kid waited. So they're basically just figuring out how long would you wait? Yeah. And data also measured at grade one and age 15 on mathematical problem solving word recognition and vocabulary for grade one and reading comprehension age 15 not age 15 at grade one just to make sure that's clear <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and they also measured so uh, mothers were asked to score the child's depressive and antisocial behavior on a three-point liker scale item so one they're not sociopaths three they are definitely sociopaths that kind of thing <laughs> right yes 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 yes, yes. <laughs> I imagine it wasn't quite <laughs> worded quite that way. And then the controlled variables, they wanted to keep consistent demographic characteristics, for example, gender, race, birth weight, apparently, mother's age at childbirth, kind of makes sense, mother's education level, family income, mother's intelligence score, and then cognitive functioning characteristics and home environment characteristics. Yes. So they're looking at a lot of stuff here. It's like they're like data mining and then just seeing where it all matches up and what this looks like. So what they found, though, in this study was that there were statistically significant correlations between waiting behavior in early stages and later academic achievement. So if you are younger and you can wait better, then you are more likely to have better academic achievement later, but a weaker correlation than the Michel experiment. So even though it said the same thing, it wasn't quite as strong as those previous experiments, which is the beauty of science, right? Something that we discovered as a truth or maybe a possible truth we found out was not quite a truth. And that's and I love that. Exactly. 
So the significance of the correlations, quote, disappeared after controlling for socioeconomic and cognitive variables, end quote. So essentially saying that the factors that are relevant to these individuals in the context in which they're being raised, when you rule those out, there's no longer difference between wait times. Yeah. Everything sort of is even. So more really, the socioeconomic factors are more predictive than anything that might be internal to the child. They also say, quote, no statistically significant associations, even without controlling for confounding variables, end quote, between early waiting behavior and behavior functioning at age 15. So showing that whatever may have been there early was no longer present once the individuals were older. Yeah. So to kind of conclude that one, they provided a comprehensive, complicated, retroactive look at Mitchell and his disciple series of studies prior. They basically took all that, tried to replicate it. And, and allegedly Mitchell's data from a non-representative middle class preschoolers sample was not replicated when the sample was more representative of a wider American population. So that that original population simply wasn't enough to get an idea of what's going on. So this original study that's often cited as like the study, you know, people away from marshmallows wasn't actually representative. And that's really what this comes down to. I mean, yeah. And, and as pointed out by one of the criticisms early on, there wasn't a very large pool in the various experimental groups that they considered. And all of these studies have had relatively small pools, even the ones that found those factors. And we'll get into more of that. But so some, some writers ask the question of whether it's more important to teach patients or try and reduce income inequality and that achievement gaps are not necessarily tied to race, but are more exclusively to more affluent versus, I guess, lower socioeconomic status communities. And Stanford economist Sean Reardon found that, quote, school achievement gap between richest and poorest Americans is twice the size of the achievement gap between black and white Americans and has been growing for decades, end quote. And so, again, just showing that what seems to be going on here more has to do with a class thing than anything else. The essentials carry a lot of determining weight, right? Like good food, quiet neighborhoods, safe homes, less stressed and healthier parents, books, and time to spend with children are all likely different potent factors that are going to influence whether or not somebody can delay gratification. Because, I mean, think of it like this. If I'm always getting my needs met, then there's never going to be a time where I'm tempted to try to get my needs met quicker. True. And that's ultimately what it is. It's like, that's like me just like kind of like, armchair psychology doing like doing that. But like you see that study, that type of situation replicated multiple times. I mean, I tell people all the time, like if you go read how to be an anti-racist, they specifically talk about this socioeconomic gap and how that is the academic achievement gap, not race, not gender, not any of those things. It absolutely comes down to whether or not the environment in which you operate and you live and your needs being met allows you to be able to attend to the relevant stimuli that are in that academic environment. Yes. All right, perfect. So let's go through a couple more of these studies. I think we've got a bit more to to wrap up on this. So from the simplepsychology.org website, there were some alternative theories on predictors of waiting behavior, and some of them we've already described, but they they talk about this trust issue, the trust in the person who is granting the reward. The children who have an established trust with the experimenter, it makes a really big difference. So in that 2013 follow-up study tricked one group of kids by not following through on the rule that they set. After waiting, and as expected, those children who had been duped were less likely to trust the experimenter next time and less likely to wait because they're like, Well, you told me that if I wait, then I get this thing, but then I don't get the thing. And so 
all they had to do is tell them like, well, you'll get into heaven if you wait. And then they were willing to wait. There's <laughs> <laughs> a little subtle. Yes. Yeah, nice kidding. little subtle dig there. I see what you did there. Yeah. But that, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like if you, if you set a false rule and you don't follow through on it, then why am I going to trust that rule again? Like that makes perfect sense, right? Right. Yeah. We're products of our environment. And this just echoes the recent, very large, relevant conversation about the socioeconomic factors and behavior. Right. So another kind of alternative theory is the idea of knowledge of time to reward. So like basically when we talk about the idea of like, how do they know when that reward is coming? Right. So explaining the contingency, including exactly how long they're going to wait, it was an indicator for better waiting behavior. So if they, if you just say you need to wait, they're going to have a harder time waiting. But if you say you're going to wait for 15 minutes, here's a timer. That's a little bit easier to kind of like possibly get through that. Yes. Which is different than when you're like at the gym holding a plank position and you don't want to know how long it's been because it feels <laughs> like it's been 10 minutes and it's only been three seconds. Yes, that's that's absolutely accurate. So the probability <laughs> of the expected reward materializing is important, which is to say that the likelihood, this comes back to the trust issue, but the likelihood that you're actually going to get the reward, whatever that reward might be, is is also an important variable so making these realistic versus unrealistic goals similar to sort of weight loss, like, oh, I'm going to lose 100 pounds by the end of this month. Like, nope, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't, set your, don't set your sights on that because you're going to be disappointed and then you need to go right back to the thing that you were doing that didn't work before. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So now we have these alternative theories and we have some of these other things. It's worth looking at some even more recent updates that talk and that kind of account for some of these factors. So even more newer, even more newer updates today <laughs> from the future. <laughs> so UC San Diego study, they published a study in 2020. So that's about as new as you can get aside from a study from 2022. That would be really wild. <laughs> that would be very new. Also, I didn't realize that anything happened in 2020. I thought that that year was just erased off of the calendar. Yeah. Isn't it weird to think that things actually happened? Yeah. No, here's what's weird, though, as I've seen, like, uh, for the Olympics, they've been calling it Tokyo 2020. They've been calling right. it the 2020 Olympics. And you're like, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was no. like, that's not confusing. No, that's not confusing at all. Like, it's very, it's like, it's like, we're just going, no, we're going to redo this. Yeah. Some people reset. are like, well, we, we wanted a 2020 and we didn't get it. So that means I'm 30. I just turned 34. Okay, that, great. That means I just turned 34. Happy birthday. So we're good. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it was in January, but I'm not 35 now because of this <laughs> year erasure. So essentially what this new study says is young children will, quote, wait nearly twice as long for a reward if they are told their teacher will find out how long they waited, mm-hmm. end quote. So now you're applying, you know, delaying gratification. Now you're applying trusted people now you're try- applying this kind of this new element to this idea of waiting. Got that uh, nice coercion in there, mm-hmm. threat of uh, eternal damnation. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so essentially a, a, a phrase for this could be the idea of what's called reputation management, which is the idea that you are engaging in behavior so that you can maintain a certain air, a certain reputation as like a good student oh, or a good person. I gotcha. So they wanted they want to like look good for the teacher. They wanted to be like, look at what a good student I am. Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on reputation management and what that looks like and the contingencies that build into that. But essentially, like you, they talk about it in that how to rethink human behavior as like a potential reinforcer. Why would you engage in behavior with that no particular reward? Why do politicians engage in like uh, like behavior where they are trying to like save face? Saving face is essentially just reputation management behavior. 
This also does, it reminds me a bit of the obedience discussion that we had when we tackled that episode mm-hmm. and the sort of the coercive nature of this and like how, how far are you willing to go because someone told you to do something under threat of otherwise bad thing will happen. Yeah. But when that person's a, a person of authority in particular. And so I think you can justify your reaction to being willing to go to follow through on obedience by saying, well, like, yeah, I want them to think of me as a, as a good little student or a good little whatever. That can get real toxic real quick. Yikes. Yeah. So essentially what this all came down to, though, is that there was a suggestion that in addition to measuring self-control, some focus should be placed on the awareness of what other people value. So and there's like that so that social context that applies to, you know, how well people wait. It's like it's one thing to wait in the presence of a of a reward, but it's another thing to wait when you think that other people are going to apply their values onto what you've done. So I guess sort of the theory here then is that for those people who are showing this higher level or their their ability to wait longer is that they are waiting longer because they care more what other people think about them and their performance. Yeah. And not necessarily they have good impulse control, but they are that cued into the sort of social circumstances and social consequences of not sticking to the expectation as they understood it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So study two So in the study, there were two experiments with 273 preschool children, again, been voluntarily roped and thrown into an experimental chamber. (laughs) And this is in China, age three to four years old. And in this case, they had their rewards were stickers and a cookie. And there were three conditions. So in one, there was a teacher and the student was told that if they were impulsive, if they cracked under the pressure and gave in, that the teacher would find out. And another one, they were told that a peer, a classmate, would find out how long they waited. And in the third condition, there were no special instructions. And in this one, the children waited longer in the teacher and peer conditions, twice as long in the uh, teacher condition as the peer condition, but not as long when there were no instructions whatsoever, obviously. And so the sort of theory here is that there's a cost-benefit analysis conducted by the kids considering the availability of the social reward or punishment if they were caught doing this thing. So again, there's the sort of avoidance coercion going on. Yeah. And there's also like this idea that kids might be motivated to, by the desire to impress others, right? Like they just, even at a young age, there's like this like social context in which I'm going to engage in behavior so that I get, I can impress you and like, sat, like satisfy you or like, you know, whatever that is. Like there's, there is like a unique kind of thing at a very early age. So there's another really recent study, I believe, that came out in 2021, and this is actually another one where Michel was a part of the research group. And again, he's actually part of the the team of people leading research on contradicting his original studies showing this marshmallow test self-control thing. They looked at some more of these longitudinal data from people who had done this when they were four and five years old. And they saw that there was no difference in things like they're, they were looking at other factors that they thought were important. Things like how much financial debt did they have? How much money did they have? What kind of jobs did they have? And found that there were no difference yeah. between the groups. There was a, It was kind of a wash, that there was a wide range, whether you waited or didn't. He actually specifically pointed out, unfortunately, it seems that he died in 2018 of complications from cancer. But he more or less said what the data are showing more and more and more is that, you know, what can be gained 
from a one-off instance of a single measurement of a single type of reaction from a student in predicting their entire lives? Nothing. Nothing. Like, what are the circumstances in that one, or very little is that what he actually says, but what are the circumstances in that moment for that kid, and as a culmination of all of their history up to that point, all four or five years of it, is like, that doesn't speak to what are the all the other experiences and context they're going to have the next time that they have to make that choice. Right. And oftentimes when we make a wrong choice, that's a really good learning opportunity that in the future, we're now going to make a different choice because we, when we were young, acted impulsively, learned that that often had adverse consequences. And then next time we were much more hesitant and we were able to contact the experience of when I just did the thing I wanted to do, stuff that I don't like happens. Right. And so the, then it could actually be the case that there's people who waited, they never contacted that. And so as they get older, they're like, you know, I've been awfully patient and waiting my whole life. Maybe it's time to just like get impulsive with stuff. And then they just dive in head first. Yeah. And also like, it was just one time, like maybe that was the one time that they were, you know, being impulsive or the one time that they were being patient and all the rest of the time, they're normally not that way. Yeah. And all these other factors, so like what kind of variables contribute to someone choosing to wait to with to withhold essentially their you know whatever they're trying to get versus those people who are impulsive and we've already talked about a lot of them there's whether you come from a secure place if you're like in a situation where most of your life you take whatever you can get whenever you can get it you're probably not going to wait just because some person in a white lab coat said well you wait longer then you get this bigger one you're like i still got a pretzel i'm going to take it right 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 like, exactly you know i'm i'm going to hedge my bets here i'd rather have something than nothing and i don't know if i can trust you right right the other things too are just sort of like well i i have to deal with stuff like this all the time like i'm going to just take the thing that's immediately available and i'm not going to play any games like just leave me out of your schemes i'm gonna get this thing let's call it a day bye right or you know what all these other kind of things like maybe the kid was just having a really bad day and was like man i just need this pretzel to take the edge off like keep your marshmallow i need some salt right now yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's that's it that's 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 the kid i met that four-year-old he he, he had a real rough time but i mean the other part of that too is like i mean like you've got like you know cultural trauma within that too like i mean like when when you look at these studies you've got like middle class white kids like you don't have like a group of black folks that are doing this who have a history of like not having great experiences with experiments and researchers right so you're probably not going to get as representative of a sample within that you've got there's just so much there's so many factors and so many things that a single marshmallow cannot tell you about a person <laughs> yeah i mean the factors in, in any given moment in any person's life are just they're vast and they're complex and they form this inner combining web of craziness that's factors that may or may not predict what someone's going to do in the moment, let alone their entire lifetime. Right. So I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest, and I, and it seems like Michel and, and his other, many of his other research colleagues more or less really came to the realization that that's just not how behavior works and that it's not really about predicting as much as it is about describing what those contextual variables are in a way that allows us to be more relevant in understanding what those contextual variables are mm-hmm. because trying to correlate what happened in a single instance with something else that happens happens in a single instance might be less valuable than just understanding what were the things going on for you why did you do what you did in this instance right exactly exactly so i think with that being said, we could probably dive into the take-home points, yeah? I think we can do it. Yeah. So the first take-home point we want to hit on is the idea that 
So Vox states that, quote, it teaches a lesson on a frustrating truth that pervades much of educational achievement research. There is not a quick fix, no single lever to pull to close achievement gaps in America. Trendy pop psychology ideas often fail to grapple with the bigger problems keeping achievement gaps wide open, end quote. And this idea of this pursuit of a one-size-fits-all key to success, it just doesn't exist. There are larger pervasive contextual issues that contribute to academic achievement, that contribute to delays and gratification that contribute to values and rewards and teaching a delayed gratification to kindergartners as a way to breed success will likely be another hope and pray type of situation that won't attend to those unique variables that contribute to whether or not somebody can actually wait, whether or not they will actually be able to succeed on their SATs or be able to have good self-worth in those different spaces. That's a good take on point. I thought so. Another is that, you know, the strong belief in predictive value of delayed gratification was the result of these early experiments not doing enough to caution against taking results too seriously, to believing in them too strongly, to applying them too broadly. No suggestions for policy or parenting were experimentally proven. None of them actually showed a cause-effect relationship. Really, just correlations were sort of loosely observed that these things happen and then these associated things happen. But when you look at other factors, other variables, things like their financial regulation, that sort of thing, you start to see it break down. And even before then, you started to see it break down. So I think the main point here just being that there was not enough done when this original research was conducted to prevent people from going off the rails with these research as being the gospel of human behavior. Right. Absolutely. And and another point that I would make too is like how we define self-control is changing, right? So the whole idea behind this particular like delaying gratification, all that is the idea of self-control. And what we're seeing here is an example of one's willpower is no longer practical. What we're seeing today is just that it's no longer practical, right? Those who demonstrate self-control likely exist in environments that present less temptation or less struggle. So Mitchell's early studies led to shifts in schooling that attempted to teach character building, grit, and a host of other cool buzzwords, right? I mean, you hear that all the time, but these are too abstract of traits to be taught and too loose to be reliably tied to future behavior and academic success. We cannot simply teach waiting in the hopes that somebody will be a doctor later, right? So in a nutshell, if your child is a sneaky, <laughs> your child is a sneaky son of a bitch and takes the marshmallow in your viral video, don't worry. Their future as a president or a serial killer is still up in the air. Or both. Or both. They could. I mean, they're, I'm sure there are presidents who are both. I'll just throw in one more really quick, which is I think that if you walk away from from this episode with nothing else, I think what we have really learned and what we could have learned in the original experiment itself is that these one-off events are not relevant to actually predicting behavior and future success, and that there are a lot of contextual variables. I, I think like really the big thing, if nothing else, is that the marshmallow test just was not actually a very useful test. For predicting how people are going to behave, that there are not good indicators when you're a child to indicate whether or not you're going to be success successful, other than the fact that you come from a family who's already successful. That right now is the biggest, I think, most consistent factor we've seen that when when you are propped up, you tend to stay up. And when you are held down, you tend to stay down. And that right. is because this the, the system perpetuates itself in an ongoing Ouroboros of infinity, yeah, self-consuming. I don't know where I'm going with this, yeah, but yeah. the point point being that like the the study, the marshmallow test doesn't tell us anything meaningful about human behavior. It literally only tells you that under specific conditions, under specific circumstances, somebody might wait a little bit longer for a marshmallow. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's what you. That's what we learned. That's literally what that study told us. Yep. So, all right, we have some bonus recommendations. Yes. Recommendations. All right. One is from our a Patreon supporter, Layla, and this was in response to a previous episode that we published where Shane recommended biscuits. Yeah. I had more yesterday. They were delicious. Nice. So she messaged us, quote, so I'm playing off your recommendations of Southern Biscuits. If you're ever in Lafayette, Louisiana, you need to go to Eddie's Biscuits, some of the best homemade Southern Biscuits and breakfast here, end quote. So recommend from Layla, if you are in Lafayette, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. please go check out those biscuits. Or if you decide that you need to pronounce Nevada as Nevada, then it's Lafayette, Louisiana. And that's where you're from. Oh, is it? I guess. I don't know how I feel about that. It's it's I'm from the <laughs> south, so it's Lafayette. You say it like Gambit from X Men. <laughs> Lafayette, Louisiana, Louisiana, because that's how you pronounce Nevada, apparently. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a very strange thing. If you're gonna, if you're gonna move your your short A's around that way, you're from Orlando. Well, yeah, but or, see, I'm from the south, and and I guess I don't know. I say Nevada, like I say, like uh, like every everybody that I talk to, like I guess maybe I don't have a southern accent, so I don't. I guess I just say things like. Nevada, like it's written, or Orlando, like it's, it's written. actually largely an East Coast thing. The East Coasters tend to say it the way that they say it. Okay, okay, I see. I hear what They're, you're saying. The people from Massachusetts, <laughs> got them. Take that. Take that, Boston. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, and then also one of our uh, writers and um, team members, Selena, uh, recommended the Jane Goodall exhibit. So if you're in a city and the Jane Goodall exhibit comes to a museum near you, that you should go see that. She was raving about this in one of our meetings about how wonderful it was. So I decided to throw that in as a bonus recommend as well. I like it. Okay, so with those, I'm going to give my recommendation first today. Do it. And then... Abraham will give his. So mine is a, a comic book series called Fables. I am always interested in like retelling of stories. Like I always found like uh, one of my favorite movies is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because it's a retelling of Homer's Odyssey. Like I just think it's like just really cool stuff. So Fables is essentially a retelling of it takes characters that you know, like the Big Bad Wolf, Snow White, Little Jack Horner and all those Prince Charming and puts them into modern times. Essentially, all their storybook lands have been decimated by somebody called the Adversary, which when you find out who the Adversary is, it's one of my favorite things ever because it's like like, it's so great that it's this person. But essentially, all their lands have been ravaged and they have to move to New York. Is it David Attenborough? (laughs) <laughs> could you imagine he's like he's been doing all the the planet earth things and he's like surprise i'm also i'm taking over your habitats <laughs> so they moved to new york city in like a little borough called fable town and it's like protected by magic so nobody knows they exist but like the big bad wolf is the sheriff there is a mayor there's like it's like and just and they go through all these stories that are really really interesting and there are 150 issues of this this comic that are collected in 22 trade papers so it is a little bit of an undertaking but it is worth the read because the stories just are a lot of fun having them like navigate what it's like to live a life in new york as like magical creatures but people could like pick up an issue and probably find enjoyment in just reading that one issue, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like if you picked up the first one, like it's a whole story about like uh, there's a there's a, a there's a murder and they're investigating it called Legends in Exile. So it's issues one through five, and it finishes that story pretty well. You just got everyone's attention with that since 
anytime someone's writing about murder, everyone wants to read it. Yeah, it's about a murder. But now imagine if like the big bad wolf is investigating the murder. There you go. Cool. Yeah. And maybe you get a courtroom drama in there because. Yeah, why not? That's the other thing that every people love to watch. Yeah, of course. That's law and order. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> not just law slash order no that's why every episode law or is in, order the law it's not law or order it's law and order because they arrest and they prosecute right that's what it is yeah that's where the order comes in that's where the order comes in y'all <laughs> all right i'm gonna recommend a movie called the hunt this actually actually came out i think last year 2020 maybe i'm not entirely sure but this was uh a horror movie so be be warned that if you're not into that sort of thing, there is uh, a, a good amount of blood and gore. And it was just, it was really fun. And it had a lot of very funny moments for a horror movie. And I think that it, it is a, a movie with a message sort of that is both, both sides of the political spectrum have their, <laughs> have their problems. <laughs> That makes sense. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was just a very fun movie and I had a lot of fun with it. So I, I recommend that one. All right. I like it. I think at the time that we're recording this, it is streaming on HBO Max. I think you can find it there. Great. All right. Before we go, I'd like to thank our awesome Patreon supporters. We have Amanda, Justine, Layla, Megan, Mike M, Mike T, and Shauna. Thank you guys for your continued being awesomeness and helping us out. Yes. If you'd like to join that list of awesome people, you can find us on Patreon. There you can join for as little as a dollar a month. And we too can, or we can also read your name in that list or you can support us with even more and you get all all kinds of extra goodies we have all kinds of levels of support that at which you can join with really fun artwork and names for those various levels like the undergraduate research participant or behavioral mm -hmm. ninja yeah or mentalist master yeah all kinds of fun it's good things stuff. yeah otherwise if you don't if you don't want to support us financially, that's okay. You can leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe, recommend us to a friend. We're on all the social media platforms. We're on all the podcast platforms, so you can find us there. And of course, if you would like to message us directly, please send us an email to info at www.podcast.com. And yeah, I guess reach out to us we want to hear we want to hear if you uh passed the marshmallow test or if you've been forcing your kid to go through it on tiktok <laughs> or if you have uh a comic book or movie you'd like to recommend please uh let us know it'd be really fun to hear from you yep i think that's all i have anything else nope that's it all right this is abraham and this is shane we're out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.
power lines running by my house and I noticed that some of the robot birds are on the power line charging. Oh, good. Okay, good. So <laughs> yeah. they're they're keeping an eye out for That's, you. Yeah, they're 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 keeping their eye on me, which is good. <laughs> uh, it just occurred to me because I saw like I was trying to think when we were talking about earlier. I'm like, do I see them sitting on power lines that often? And then like four in a row just land on the power lines. I'm like, oh, they're charging. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're charging. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Justin. Please cut all that. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> just put that at the end of the episode that, that's your that's your ending yeah i guess that'd make yeah. a good uh <laughs> end post credit scene <laughs>